Hello, everybody, and welcome to the SIG Marxism Podcast. I am your host, Sam. This episode, as always, will be edited by Rich. Thank you, Rich. Today, we are joined by another special guest, uh, the lead host of the podcast Death Sentence. Uh, that'll be Gareth Watkins. Gareth, how are you doing today? Uh, good. I, I don't reconsider myself the lead host. I think Langdon you know, pulls the an equal weight to me, uh, although I did like found the podcast and edit it and distribute it and pay for it so yeah. <laughs> uh, we're starting off humble i like that i like that yeah yeah all right thank you gareth uh, gareth will be joining us today uh we are going to talk about false gods and we have our boy back danny how are you doing where have you been um how's the fam uh i got the clap so um no i i just uh i so the story is you see turns out when you spill milk all over your computer it doesn't work no good yeah uh we actually were we were debating about that we were wondering if you were actually a pseudo fascist alex and i and rich we were wondering if you were trying to indoctrinate it into a white supremacist ritual oh yeah it very problematic it it just the i'm trying to think of a joke here and i can't think of a joke so i'm just gonna end it like this and and (laughs) Was it a motherboard or a fatherboard? Is the question. Mm. Yeah, which there one, Danny? Go. Which one, Danny? We can't. We can't continue the podcast. Look, look. All I'm saying is, how can there be patriarchy if you call it a motherboard? Mm. I mean, yeah. check. It's like liberals owned. Uh, uh, Alex, of course. How are you doing today? Uh, great. I am your uh, ghost of heresy past, and I'm excited to talk about um, false gods. Alrighty. Uh, before we do get on to false gods, uh, Gareth, uh, we always like to ask the guests this. Uh, what's your experience with uh, Warhammer? You know, did you play the hobby? You read the lore? Uh, what's your story? I, I don't actually know what it is. I When I was in school, I was just into like girls and sports and driving <laughs> cars. So I, I never got into Warhammer. Okay. Uh, okay. But um, yeah, I just joined this podcast to bully you guys. Um, <laughs> but uh, okay, R- real story was I got in, I. I grew up in a really tiny town in the countryside, so I didn't, I couldn't get into like comics or anything like nerdy like that because there just wasn't any. And um, I found a copy of White Dwarf somewhere. I think some other kid's big brother bought one to school or something, and it looked cool as fuck. And it was totally my eight-year-old self's aesthetic. So I kept buying lots of White Dwarfs. I eventually like persuaded my dad to drive me a couple of hours to a city where which actually had a games workshop store ended up buying like uh the rogue trader like big book manual that they had back then oh nice uh and i ended up buying my first ever miniature which was commissar yarrick who is still (laughs) still still, around still around still kicking ass taking names cutting off arms he's just great great character and he's LGBT, uh, right? That he's uh, he's had a relationship with a uh, another yeah, man. A, so even as a child, you awoke. Damn, that's that explains a lot actually. What came later in my life? Um, and mm. uh, what 
Really? I, I actually I never knew that. That's, that's yeah, it's it's a it's a very obscure passage in one of the Armageddon books. He basically talks about one of the reasons he really hates orcs is like his boyfriend was killed. It's it's like one of those things like GW kind of like papers over it, and I think it was like one of the authors just trying to like sneak something in past the editor. <laughs> I, I would totally do that if I could write these books, and I should be able to write these books because I'm a better writer than literally anyone who's ever done it. <laughs> Probably uh, everyone here on this podcast and everyone who is listening is too. I, I mean, Gareth, have you heard about our Lord and Savior, uh, Dan Abnett? <laughs> Let's be real. Uh, on on the same uh, trip where I bought um, Commissar Yarrick, uh, I also bought uh, the first ever 40K novel, which is called Inquisitor by Ian Watson. I, I remember. Wow, you're uh, old. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm ancient, but um, yeah, I. And I still rem- like remember passages from it because I like read that thing till it fell apart. And it was mm-hmm. totally inappropriate for like a ten-year-old. Like tote, like <laughs> sex and violence just utterly warped me. Yeah, uh, I think I think we all have had that experience. Uh, the forbidden uh, text or forbidden movie or something. Yeah, mine was unfortunately it wasn't like something cool. It was a forty-k tie-in novel. <laughs> hey, you gotta start somewhere. I think mine was uh, uh, was the James Cameron's Terminator, which I was shown at the age of like nine or ten as well. So yeah, I must fun. have seen it around that time too. That was and God, what uh, was very formative experience. And that's why this is a Terminator podcast. But uh, all right, anyways, uh, today we are talking about Graham McNeil's False Gods. Uh, that's the second book in the kind of uh, the Loken trilogy of the first three books. Uh, if you are interested in our coverage of Horus Rising, please check our previous episode. Episode 1, The Bad Daddy Chronicles Part 1. Uh, you know, where it's on the website, you'll be able to see it, uh, where Alex goes and makes mostly the S.H.I.E.L.D. references. Uh, so it's not so it's not too helpful as a review of Horus Rising, but, it you know... It really, if, really is. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> so we got that. Um, so we're going to go spoiler-free. Uh, gentlemen, first impressions, you know... Uh, like, don't worry about summary. We'll do that later. So, Gareth, what are you thinking? Would if you had to give somebody a straight yes or no? Uh, okay. To like a general normie audience, a hard no because it's badly written. Uh, it's, politics are bad. The plot is a mess. Its pacing is just a masterclass in how to not pace a book. Um. And if you somehow end up liking it, you'll be kind of obligated to read the other 23,445 pages of those <laughs> books. But I did that math, by the way. Yeah. Um, oh, Jesus. Jesus te- H. I, I, it may actually be the longest um, continuous uh, like series in all of fiction, mm. if providing you don't count Star Wars Extended Universe as one continuous narrative. No, no counting all... That's a dangerous thing to count all the Star Wars continuous... Expanded universe as a continuous narrative. Yeah, it, 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 it like goes on tangents and stuff. So I don't count um, it as one narrative. And I take issues with this because is it more expansive than uh, Radio Falls of the Archers? Is my question. No, it is not. That, okay. that if you were to write down the Archers, that would still be the longest running thing ever. The Ambridge mm. Heresy beats out the Horus Heresy by a, a, a slice. Yeah, there should be oh. way more like uh, warp mutations and. Uh, yeah, chaos taint in in that, but there isn't. Yeah, so just lots of organic farms and uh, and adultery. But sorry, sorry to interrupt you. With- <laughs> so chaos taint is what uh, you're saying. So there's um, some make, stuff make- Americans will have no idea about. 
as <laughs> something that's going right above my head. Uh, for, for you British audiences, this was just for you. Totally planned. Love you. Uh, yeah, it, it's it, yeah, it's writing is bad. It's pacing and plots are bad. Um, there, there are some scenes that are good, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get to. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it I think it, it, it's a book that covers the most was arguably the most pivotal point of the Warhammer 40k universe ever. The horse's decision <laughs> to actually bad. be a bad person, and it covers it in such a bad way, and it, it makes the decision making process itself so stupid mm-hmm. and makes everyone around him and even by extension the emperor himself seem really stupid a moron yeah i mean honestly like horace's transition like like his motivation makes like dr doofenshmirtz look like he had like a really good motivation for like building a death ray <laughs> yeah, his like his catalyst is the scene from The Simpsons where Homer eats a magic chili and goes to talk to the spirit guide. <laughs> spoilers. Now we're getting to the spoilers, you see. Okay. Um, now we're, yeah, spoiling The Simpsons. All right, that's a, that's automatic 10-year uh, band. We'll see you in 10 years, Gareth. Uh, it's classic Simpsons. There's no spoiling it, okay? That's like saying, like, Darth Vader is Luke's father. Right. Well, whoa, we, whoa. we can't say that either. That's also, you just ruined Star Wars and The Simpsons and... How am I going to binge watch the Star Wars and the Simpsons at the same time now that you ruined both for me simultaneously? Just no one spoiled the end of Titanic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not a spoiler podcast. Ruining everything for you. Every, we're, we're ruining everything. Uh, yeah. Who is who is John Galt? Uh, you know, uh, okay. Uh, Danny, uh, thoughts about False Gods, uh, you know, spoiler free. Would you recommend it to somebody uh, if they're a Warhammer fan or not a Warhammer fan? General thoughts in the book. Go. No, it reminds me. Like, you know, you have your favorite food and then you like order at a restaurant and you're like, oh, hey. Uh, I, I like this food. I'm gonna order it, and it comes, and it's 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 not as good as you thought. Uh, th- that's how I would describe this book. It's like bad mac and cheese. But we're not tipping Craig McNeil, right? I mean, we agreed on oh, this. Oh yeah, he's getting a shit tip. Like, for, for, I'm all look, look. I'm all for the working class and retail workers, but uh, Graham McNeil, uh, I'm tipping you with like one of those like fake little bills where it like has like the Ten Commandments on it, just randomly. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> cancel oh yeah that that that's a that's a total thing that goes on yeah you you put it right underneath it so like it looks like a legit ten dollar bill then you move the you move like the glass or something it's like it's like actually have you found jesus i thought the british were bad for just playing not tipping but that's actually worse right oh oh it's even worse like i saw someone there was this thing where it's like what you have to do is you have to lay out five one dollar bills and then every time the the person fucks up you take one away like just like obvious manipulation and just like just horrific uh abuses of (laughs) yes power abuses they do that but each time they fuck up i remove one commandment yeah. So they can't they can't see all the commandments and therefore be saved. But yeah, I mean that that's how I describe it, especially with Loken. Like Loken goes from like being this very interesting sort of character to uh uh like murdering someone. So uh there's that. Uh yeah, we're we're definitely gonna talk about the uh borderline character assassination that happens in these books, especially in comparison to uh Horace Rising. Remember when Horace Rising where where he was asking if we should do this? And now, now just now, just then he goes onto the ship, just fucking murders someone, like mm-hmm. just, just just kills them, because like in his way. 
Uh, okay, yeah. Um, I was not a fan of the book, to say the least. It was a slog. Like, at first I was like, okay. I, I always remembered it being the, the weakest of the trilogy between Horus Rising and Galaxy and Flames. It was definitely the weakest of them. But I didn't re- realize, like, all the problematic stuff that was going to be within it. And, like, even, like, even if you could, like, gloss over all the problematic things, like the treatment of uh, women characters, military fetishism, uh, the bolter porn, excessive bolter porn that tends to go on. It's not a good book. It's it's overall not a good book. I, I, I feel bad saying this, but uh, I, I, for this one, like, you, you're going to get the same thing by reading, like, a 1D 4chan post. Like, we, we 100% recommended Horse Rising. Because uh, that was a very good book, and that was enjoyable, and it really built up a lot of the characters, uh, built up some of the Primarchs, the relationships, that kind of stuff. Uh, built up Horus very well. And then you just have this book, and it's just kind of... And there's just so many things that are gross. Like, And most of the characters that uh, have returned from the uh, from Horus Rising, like they're just treated like shit. They come off as total dumbasses, or just totally unlikable versions of themselves. And they're just like almost unrecognizable. And all the characters that McNeil does introduce, which we'll get on to the spoiler section, like they don't add anything really. And you're just kind of left to, you're just left these like whole cast. Like Horace isn't, Horace is worse. Loken is worse. Torghaden is kind of the same. Karkaski's worse. I mean, <sighs> Karkaski, like, did, I mean, he also wrote uh, bad poems in uh, Horace Rising, but at the very least, you, you had some. Uh, semblance of of connect of like connection to him. And yeah, here it's not there. It just like like I said, it feels like if you're if Horus Rising is like the pure Imperium, you see, and this book has been corrupted by chaos <laughs> and has been absolutely uh obliterated. You see, by um, I like to think it's by Tim's Nietzsche because he's actually ruining the Warhammer 40k lore through some galaxy brain scheme to bring down the entire universe because no one's gonna buy it like it'll all fall apart because guess what no one's buying the books and stuff and therefore gw just like goes under and then his niche wins because the universe is destroyed because no one cares about it wait wait were you pronouncing him to zinch not zinch am i just really stupid uh i said to zenich once but um... Zinch, I do believe it's Zinch, and I think it's Slanish, not Slanesh. But um, there's an extra. No, no, there. no, 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 it's definitely Slanesh because, like, uh, if you listen to the Dawn of War two uh, noise marines, they'll say this noise offends Slanesh. So <laughs> I, I, I base all my uh, enunciations off of Dawn of War, even even for non Warhammer related things. I'm just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Imperium, uh, Emperor, uh, Heretic. Uh, I just copy everything from Dawn of War. It's basically the most formative video game in my life, really. Yeah, my teacher gave me a weird look when I said Imperiumism in class one day. (laughs) (laughs) I think in the uh, Warhammer Total War games, they say say Slanesh. I think that could be the case, or it could be that's the Dark Elf pronunciation of Slanesh, but uh, I doubt that. Uh, and th- th- for me, the Total War games are the definitive text. Those are the uh, those are actually the perfect of all Warhammer, both 40k and not. The for- the those two games are the perfect uh, encapsulation of everything this universe is about, and they are the best thing ever. Hmm. Uh, I was totally right to spend eighty pounds on them. <laughs> Very true. Is that including all the DLCs? 
No, that would be. I I think I was working out earlier. It's closer to three hundred pounds if you get all the DLC. But not when it's that's that's when you're paying full price though. Yeah, you got to wait. You got to time your Steam sales really well to actually not bankrupt yourself and buying that game. It's better than like a train simulator, like 2014, where it's like literally you look at all the DLC for that. It costs two grand more. Oh, really? That's for Germans who have a lot of money because they have an actual working social democracy. Yeah, they have uh, a healthcare system that's not constantly under threat. I mean, for you guys, your NHS is just constantly being threatened to be gutted. In ours, we just ours is basically just the Hunger Games, but real. Oh yeah. We just yeah, get the insurance, like the insurance money that you get from uh, just the insurance money you get is like sponsorships from like the sponsors in the Hunger Games. It kind of just comes down <laughs> from the sky and uh, pays for your medical bills. Yeah. Well, you uh, yeah. Well, the, go fun, on, uh, the GoFundMe go Hunger Games. Exactly. Yeah. You're just like, okay, uh, I have the best personality. You know, I have the best, uh, I'm the best looking. Show all, show all of your best uh, TNA picks. So that way people will be like, oh, yeah, this person's worth living. Yeah, well, this is this is actually a good thing because it means Darwinian evolution will produce the perfect influencer. And actually, <laughs> isn't that actually what the emperor is? The greatest Instagram thought of all? Mm. This is very true. Welcome to my TED Talk. Yeah, the, the emperor was produced after 10,000 years of evolution by people uh, dying because they're mm. not good content creators, and mm. which is how, as it should be. And right. the perfect influence is influencers breed in to produce the ultimate human that's that's why the american healthcare right. system is good i was gonna say hot take uh the emperor is actually jake paul the hair is incredibly similar you're, you're right uh, it, he, he manipulates he, he's, he's a very charismatic person who really gets with the young people and really embodies our generation like i think i believe jake paul will one day start the grand crusade this is just a fact team 10 is just his primarchs i mean they <laughs> They all live together. They all have different personalities and aspects to them. I'm oh, sure yeah. everyone. I, I don't um, follow up on this at all, but I'm sure every one of Team Ten maps perfectly onto one of the original Primarchs. Don't don't make me explain that because that's emotional labor and gaslighting. But it <laughs> it is a hundred percent true. Oh God, yeah. I, I would say especially with the uh, the Emperor. Like the I think the new lore for the Emperor is that he was like. Like legitimately, like what the like when the emperor text to speech was correct, and that he was sacrificed by like twenty human shamans. So I guess the, those shamans were the influencers of their time uh, to create sacrifice themselves for likes. Yeah, social experiment, killing ourselves, to create a god. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hard. Oh uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, sorry, Alex. For we we went on a little bit of a tangent there. That is absolutely fine, uh, <laughs> Alex. What are your uh, what are your thoughts on uh, False Gods? Uh, you know, spoiler free. Uh, would you recommend it to someone a fan of Warhammer or not? So I got to echo uh, the previous statements made. Um, it is not a particularly great book, um, and uh, so I would definitely recommend Horus Rising to a newcomer to the hobby. Uh, this takes um, very important sort of events in the lore and kind of does them in the least interesting way possible like in a similar way to how recent seasons of game of thrones have been working from uh george rr R. martin post-it notes this kind of does the same thing but with codex in. um it's there are things to enjoy about it a little but for the most part it is um subpar for the the wider genre fiction and then probably 
about average to mediocre for Black Library. Yeah. So <laughs> we 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 were well, thankfully kind of all in uniform about this. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't want any further spoilers, you would be better off just reading the lexiconum summary. Honestly, <laughs> like I, I viewed it over once afterwards. I'm like, oh, is there anything you're really losing there? I'm like, no. Um, those those boys at lexiconum doing the emperor's work right over there. Uh, they got the be- they got the best summary. But you. Well, but you miss every time Gray McNeil describes someone with wide set eyes, handsome and masculine. Oh, which <laughs> character was that? that? Which character was that again, Alex? Uh, I All of remember. them. All oh, of them. it was. Is it like Ben Shapiro describing people with uh, craggy beards and, uh, or no, scraggly beards and like craggy faces? Yeah. Yeah. Age. Yeah. He doesn't even go through like age. Uh, if you're listening and you don't want to be spoiled further, Death Sentence and the Sig Marxism podcast are going to give a resolute no to false gods if you want the the dry version of it read lexiconum if you want the problematic version you read 1d4 chan this podcast does not endorse 1d4 chan um so from here on out spoiler warning we are just going to go through the entire book like we're going to talk about character details plot events plot summary uh we're not going to hold anything back so if you aren't interested in spoilers turn back now we are not holding back all right for everyone else who's who's sticking with us in the podcast I mean, honestly, like you should just listen to this podcast anyways because the book's not worth reading it. <laughs> in all honesty, just, yeah, just I think you I think you said that. Let, let's stop laying into McNeil for a moment, and then we'll no, continue. No, he, oh, he's bad. And he, <laughs> his book's bad, and he should feel bad. Yeah, you know what? Don't read the book. Yeah, even if you even if you even if you're sensitive to spoilers, just read our, listen to our podcast. It's going to be ten times better than the fucking uh, false gods. Okay, so where do we fade in on? Yeah, so we have part one. We're going to just do uh, the book, like much little similar to Horse Rising, is broken down into parts. This one has four parts instead of just three parts. And they're. So therefore, it's an improvement on Horus Rising. Yeah, there's more, so it's better. <laughs> the variability on quality between these parts is astounding. Like, how. Okay, so we have part one. So we, so we obviously ended at Horus Rising, where they're all heading to Davin. Uh, and if you're familiar with Davin, you kind of know what's already kind of coming to happen. So they land on there. It's a planet that the word bears and the sons of Horus at the time, Luna Wolves, had brought into cl- compliance. But things have been complicated because the word bearers lead chaplain Erebus decides to be a total asshole about things and doing it in the dumbest, most obvious way possible. I just, yeah, let's, let's just talk about like how Erebus goads Horus to uh to go to the moon of Davin. Let's just talk about that for a bit. Yeah, he like w- what we've got here is essentially the the character can be described as swole greamer worm tongue and he makes like the most obvious uh manipulative kind of so um what happens is you have this grand conference where everyone's deciding what to do about the the traitor the rebel uh who well uh, sorry um we don't know uh, at well, this point. At that, po- at that point, they don't know yes, that. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. No. So the point is, there's like a uh, a war conference, and mm-hmm. um, Horus is speaking, and then Erebus interrupts, which in this universe where you have got a Primarch speaking, you don't do that. Um, and then he just kind of goes, "Oh, so yeah, you know, there's this uh, there's this traitor who's who's kind of blasphemed against your name, told you you suck, and uh, yeah, he's on this moon." Um, but I mean, we we can talk about this in private if you want. Like when he's just <laughs> riling Horus up, <laughs> and he basically no pushes all, no yeah, he, yeah, he pushes all the obvious buttons to try and mm. incite violence. And to the extent that afterwards, 
Carcassy has to explain this to Logan, where he basically <laughs> does like um uh, like body language coaching on Logan, where he's like, oh yes, when he raised his eyebrows with the DreamWorks face like this, that meant he was manipulating Horace. And then Logan uh... is like, what? <laughs> when, when, he, when he obviously said, hey yo, uh, Temba's uh, calling you a bitch, you should go kill him. Uh... <laughs> You should yeah. you should go go clap his ass. Uh, it was very obvious. It wasn't obvious enough that that was manipulation. We needed to restate it. Yeah, it had to be explained to us through Karkaski in the the most dumb guy way. Yeah, well, Horace and Loken like immediately, immediately as the book comes off, start off. They seem like ten times dumber characters than they were in Horace Rising. Loken especially. That scene with like often books and um, all media. All narratives have things called uh, plot twists. I don't know if uh, anyone's heard of them. But, um, I can't say I have. Yeah. Uh, they were in invented by M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> a few years ago. Yeah. it Like, they could have done... It could have been so much more interesting if Erebus had just been, like, subtle and no one had called them out on it. No one had... Um, it, it could just be done very simply, and then it could have turned out, oh, wait, he's... He's a baddie all along, but instead they they make it so obvious. I, I'm sure in uh, Horse Rising he was just as clearly coded as uh, as evil. Well, you, you speak about twists. That in Horace Rising, the point is he's not an especially uh, foregrounded character, and then the twist is at the end he stole the the anatheme, the the, right, the yeah. blade that becomes important later. Um, mm. So you you kind of have that. So the twist happens. Okay, we know Erebus is bad, and then Gray McNeil seems to think. Well, I guess that just means we know he's bad now. We we flick the switch. We can't unflick it. Let's just let's uh, just keep okay. going. Okay, so, so that yeah. that particular bell has been rung. Okay, that that makes that makes it make more sense, but it's still yeah, badly it's done. bad. It's still bad because yeah, it, that kind of level of like rank. Those guys called you jerks, but they're jerks. Kind of level of manipulation just makes Erebus look dumb for doing it. Horus look dumb for falling for it. Everyone around him look dumb for not calling. Erebus on it, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of appreciate it. Like it, it's bad. It's it's bad, and the book suffers for it. But I do enjoy how obviously evil Erebus is, and like, and, and it's like Loki has suspicions, and Erebus like is literally covered in like fucking face tattoos and text with like burning books and like a screaming <laughs> David and shit like that. And he's just like, like he he basically gives like shifty eye motions like every other page. There's like, actually. <laughs> I uh, yeah, you're right. And I'd say there's one bit in this entire book that comes later, so I won't spoil the exact details. Where Erebus is actually quite nicely characterized. No, come on. no, we're going full. We don't give a shit about this. Okay, book. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, well, well, we'll get to this anyway. So I'm not going to say the context of it. Um, but uh, basically, uh, um, Loken calls. Uh, no, sorry, Erebus calls Loken a coward. They square off against each other, and Erebus is confident that people are going to back him. But then when the rest of the Mournable just steps behind Loken, Erebus is like. Oh wait, maybe maybe I've gone a bit too far. So he kind of like um, he he retreats basically. That's probably the only bit that really wrong true for me, where he's kind of working as a slimy, um, Grima Wormtongue-ish character. He's he's yeah. always trying to be manipulative. He's never not. He's never telling the truth. That's yeah, his the, character. The the Motten Bailey approach really suits him, and I think more of that might have been interesting rather than. Uh, just f for plot reasons, everyone believes his obvious barefaced lies. 
Um, well, I mean, yeah. even like like going beyond that, like I feel like if he, if he had been almost like in the first book, like he's still like a background character, just kind of like doing very subtle things to manipulate stuff, but like still doing that sort of thing, like just not being like obvious, like just mustache twirling uh, villain, then I think it would have just you know made a better story. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so. Part one, um, obviously, this is the the important bit where uh, Erebus kind of incites Horus to um, to go against Temba, this person who's rebelled against him. Um, right. But there's also another character that's set up. Do you want to take that, Sam? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, okay. Well, I, I think it's kind of important. Not that just like it's the clear out heretic, right? It's uh, Eugene Temba, who was a former governor. It was appointed by Horus himself, and he's clearly baiting it. He's baiting. Um, uh, Horace's ire so much that he will take the battlefield himself. Like that—that that is the key point. It's not just like, oh, here's some heretics and we got to murder them. He's very much saying he renounces you, Horace. Yes, and you are bad. <laughs> you are garbage. And by the way, you're weak and you won't be able to take me. <laughs> like it's the most obvious. Like because like Horace, like we saw Horace had like a bit of a temper in the first one, but this one's clearly just like trying to rile him up as much as possible. So that way Horace will try to will lose all senses and he will take the battlefield himself, even though normally he would just, you know, sit on the vengeful spirit and let the Luna Wolves, the Sons of Horus, take care of it. Yeah. And um so this relating to Horace's storyline, um he, we've got a new character who's um introduced oh, God. by yeah. Yeah, you do uh, Gray McNeil, uh called Petronella Viva, who is a remembrancer. She's like a chronicler. Now um Gareth, uh, do you want to do the honors and talk about this uh interesting character to say the least and her and her servant maggard Ma maggard's cool like don't get me wrong nothing but good things to say about him he's like a silent kung fu guy that's awesome. <laughs> that's always good so yeah petronella so she's a uh the scion of a aristocratic family from earth or terror as we're calling it now for them some some reason um she is she's a, a character that someone who perhaps doesn't have the highest opinion of women would write. She um, is constantly getting dressed into elaborate and sexualizing clothing. Um, she is at one point a literal damsel in distress. Um, luckily Maggot steps in and is way more awesome than entire chapter of Space Marines. And um, she's uh, she's a writer in the sense that that as in the same sense as a lot of published writers are writers because they're rich and they can afford the time to do it and it's just a distraction for them. And um yeah, she's she's weak as hell as a character. Yeah. She she likes pretty dresses and being around powerful people. And the most powerful person to be around is Horus, who she is absolutely enamored with every second. Whenever he comes in a room, it's just it goes full Mills and Boone. Yeah. And, now I, want, now I really want to see the uh, the high school romance version of this, where it's like they're at the lunch table and like she sees Horace from across the room. And they're like, "No, you go talk to him." Ooh, it's just uh, like a really dumb crush. You, you talk to Horace Chan. <laughs> oh, no, just noticed me. Yeah, Horace Chan. Should definitely be a uh, a horny shonen uh, shoju anime version of oh. this. Yeah, and keep keep the scale different, so he's still like ten feet tall. <laughs> exactly, and the tentacles work with it too. Okay, so she's like on most of her plot points is like, oh god, there's so much to talk about this character. Okay, one, the 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 Black Library write, writers never describe characters as white; they are always olive skinned, which I think because like you can't acknowledge that whiteness is a thing, except for uh, the black girl. 
quote. No, and, uh, and and you know you, you want to know who else is black, Gareth? You want to know who else is black? Who's black? Maggard. Oh. Maggard is described as dark skinned. She a has mute a, slave. Her mute concubine slave. Oh, I must is have a missed black that. guy. I must have missed that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's literally just one line. That it says dark skinned. Wow. Yeah, I was going through this quick, so maybe I've missed a lot of uh, heresy in this one. But um, I did notice the. I think. Uh, What's her name? Uh, one of the other remembrances is Mercedes. Mercedes Olsen. Yeah. Yeah, she's also she's also black. A black girl at one point. So real in this book, which is sad. Yeah, mm. yeah, she gets character assassinated by basically not being in the book. Uh, yeah, I just kind of want to talk about this relationship between Petronella and Maggard, and I don't want to accuse McNeil of being viciously, purposely racist, uh, or just ignorance. But it's it's like old racist tropes. That have been around, especially especially in Western culture. I mean, like with Birth of the Nation, he clearly not, never saw that. The white woman being protected by her literal black slave. Uh, and who he for she forces to be his concubine. Uh, there's a passage later on where she basically is like touching him. And he's like visibly uncomfortable. So she, she physically rapes Maggard. Like and multiple things, and he has nothing to do about it. Because she's, because as she puts it, if anything were to happen to her... His life is for his life is for just like the it's just so like we talk about problematic stuff. It's just like the imagery of just like the white woman being protected by the black by her black slave that who she forces to be a sexual slave and he has no free will. He's literally had his vocal cords ripped out, so he's not even allowed the agency of his own voice at certain times. Uh, and, Dicky, yeah, yeah, and and just like okay, it's not just that she that she's like feminine, Actually good because he's good at killing people. So who can say whether this is a good or bad character? <laughs> I mean, this is very true. It's very progressive because um, we, ha you know, we have all this problematic stuff, but uh, he also uh, uh, kicks ass, and uh, that makes him. That makes it just perfectly fine. That makes I, it okay. You yeah, guys and it's call not just SJW uh, libcucks, and you're just the soy in this room is just repulsive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> what happened to you in those two weeks? <laughs> Oh, I got, I'm sorry. I got red pilled. I went to Rouge V, and I uh, just became, uh, you know, women are thoughts. Am yeah. I not good? Yeah. And, okay. And it's not just that she dresses in feminine clothing. It's McNeil's kind of like treats her as bad because she does it. Like it's not just that she's like highly feminine sort of stuff, but she's very portrayed much as a social climber, as like will do anything she can to reach any heights of uh, wealth or popularity. Basically, like um, people who are scratching at the concept of class consciousness, but they they get hung up on um, a snobby rich girl. So they emphasize mm. the the snob and the girl rather than the rich. Well, yeah. In other places, this could be used as like a little bit of a, a class criticism. You know, if 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 poor people in the Imperium were actually shown in this book, then we could see we could contrast. You know, her gold platinum bikini mm. or whatever the hell she's wearing at a particular time. Uh, next to some rags of some hive world peon but mm -hmm. uh, we apart from the the very brief uh, bunch of guys that are a crew for a titan uh, we don't actually get like regular grunts in this particular all that much mm -hmm. so whatever possible you know let them eat cake kind of thing <laughs> we could have done with this uh, doesn't get to happen because we're just concentrating on the highborn 
Speaking of the Titan, that's probably, even though it's, as we will talk about, a not especially important storyline, despite being set up quite early, and you think it's going to be important, that is kind of the third part of it. Or we also have like this cluster of characters who uh, operate the um, the Imperial Titan, which is like a big... The, the Dazed Array <laughs> is what it's called. Yeah, uh, it's, um, it's, ba- it's basically like the biggest fucking Titan possible. Yeah, and um, its crew, uh, one of whom is called Titus, so you, you know it's a clever book. It's the Titan. <laughs> yeah, uh, pilot yeah. is called Titus. Um, yeah, it, it does sort of set up the beginnings of what I think is the theme of this book, where uh, the t- Titus character is already um, reading the Lectitio Divinitatis, which is the currently un. Um, uh, look down upon cult of worshipping the emperor. Well, it's banned, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've got that kind of half of it, and then his his uh, the other pilot, Jonas, um, is completely against uh, the cons of the emperor, but he's very horny. So in my opinion, what this, <laughs> this book is about is yes. the conflict between horny cultists and Volsel cultists. Um, so horny being chaos, Volsel being the emperor. And... So- it's the difference between like incels and like Catholic like priests sort of things. <laughs> it's just something totally different involved. Yeah, I'm not sure about that thing, but it, it, it's it's set up as like it's okay. So the princeps is like the leader of the Titan sort of stuff, and it's like oh Titus Cassar, you know he he worships the emperor as a god, and you know princeps the princeps doesn't like that, and Jonah's like uh, the smart atheist uh, who doesn't worship that. You know he looks down upon it. And you get you get this whole dynamic kind of set up and like how the crew interacts and you're like oh look how important a Titan is, and then you get Jack Diddley's squat about them except for like very like uh, table scraps about the Titan. Hmm. Yeah, I, it, it's you can tell it came out in I think it was 2006, right? It 2006. Kind of out, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it kind of came out at the height of the whole new atheist thing, mm-hmm. and it it shot through of it like every other page you can is something that could come from Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, th- there's even quotes. There's a quote later on in the book. Um, oh, yeah. The emperor tells us that civilization will only achieve perfection when the last stone of the last church falls upon the last priest, mm-hmm. which is a, a maulin of a quote from oh, an Enlightenment. Uh, uh, this like famous atheist, I, I forget his name, is French. He was a priest who secretly hated the idea of religion, and he wrote, one of its quotes attributed to him was like, I would uh, create a rope to from the guts of the last king to hang the last priest. And um which is a funny, I like badass that quote. quote, but um yeah, because it's got a little bit of anarchism in there too. And um yeah. but He's yeah. Like an all right guy. Yeah, he, he was an alright guy, but the like new atheists who followed that guy, he weren't, you know, as brave or eloquent as that particular guy. Um yeah, yeah you, you can tell it it came this book came out like contemporaneously with that. Because yeah, it, it's it's everywhere with this, especially the religion stuff. The book is very much a product of its time, as well as Horus Rising, where Horus Rising decided. I mean, the atheism part, the new atheism part, part was a part of it, uh, but it was kind of mixed in with this uh, looking down upon imperialism, uh, the criticism of the Iraq War that we talked about when we did Horus Rising. This one, it, it, it does the the thing that I hate most about Black Library books. Uh, one, yeah, it's full of new atheism. It's like atheism is the real problem. You know, it's not that we're fascist. It's not that we're imperialist uh, world conquerors that slay entire species. It's no, it's like it's because we're about to be invaded by uh, religion. And two, it's like the soldiers are good, the bureaucrats are bad, and that's oh, like a running God, theme. So, ah, uh, 
It's like, it's, it's like the Vietnam vet who's just like, oh man, the politicians lost the war. Uh, we were actually, literally, it's like Westmoreland from Beyond the Grave is just haunting this fucking book because it's just like, oh man, we could have won if we just killed more people. The body counts are what's what matter, guys. We lost because all these damn bureaucrats caring about the red tape. It's like, no, you're a moron if you think that. Westmoreland, you deserve to get fired. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> just, just personally, fuck you, Westmoreland. Fuck yeah, you. I, I mean, even there's even worse comparison you can make, which is like the uh, the Freikorps in Germany after the First World War. Like these warrior lodge, literal warrior lodges of demobilized soldiers who blamed the German uh, kind of socialists and communists in Germany for losing the First World War, and then they ended up becoming Hitler. So. Yeah, I don't want to like uh, Godwin's law this, but um, yeah, we're the, talking about the Imperium. It's impossible. Oh yeah, true. But um, yeah, yeah there's kind of close uh, relationship between this kind of like anti-red tape that the warriors should be running the society and like early kind of Nazi thought. So it's, yeah, and the and the book totally endorses that thought too. With like everything that happens, it's like. It's these bureaucrats, the intelligentsia, the tax man. It's like this is truly what's bringing down what how great the Imperium could be. Like, like you could have done an interesting criticism of it, being like, okay, yeah, you know, like it is like very fascist this kind of thought. But at every point, the book decides to take. It's like, no, the soldiers are right, the military is right, the generals are right. Well, I, I don't think that's completely fair. I think part of that is just um, McNeil not being very good at attacking this theme because, uh, as yeah, it's <laughs> like, well, this could have been good, struggle. but he's bad. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. basically, like, I don't think that's the intention anyway. Because uh, quite commonly throughout, you do see the the, the kind of the, the the horrible side of um, oh, well. Uh, what we'll say is on the subject of of, of maybe the the atheism. Um, this book is tr kind of falling into the trap, which wasn't the case of Horace Rising or painting. Uh, emperor worship is kind of inherently good. Like it's not challenged when Sinderman and Keeler are going fully into that. And then obviously we have the morally complicated but ultimately doomed to be evil uh, chaos. And the only two characters you really have in the middle are Loken who is the protagonist, and Carcassi, who was an interesting kind of Shakespearean full character in the first book. But now, is, as you mentioned to me offline, Sam, he's he's a bit more of a PUA. <laughs> um, so mm -hmm. it's kind of annoying that we can't grasp at what, the, you know, the character I'd love in this, which is the person who isn't worshipping Chaos and trying to bring down the Imperium, but also isn't worshipping the Emperor, because that also sucks. Ah, the um, radical centrist approach. In the first book, like, like he had that speech talking about, you know, he was trying to almost like morally justify what they're doing and without almost praising the emperor. And I can feel like sort of if this book had been written better, you could kind of talk about his sort of questioning himself. But like the way he does it is just so ham-fisted where it's like, oh, uh, so what, what is this newfangled emperor worship? I am converted now. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes. So shall we move on to part two? Because this is kind of where we get to some of the more plot-heavy things. What we're talking about currently is like characters and setup. Sure, sure. Uh, so once we get to part two, uh, this is basically where shit kind of hits the fan, quite literally. Uh, so Horace decides to lead the spearhead uh, personally into the, the moon of Davin, uh, which, which is led by Eugene... Uh, Eugene Temba, 
uh, very similar to how they in the whisper heads they started getting a whisper, but this time it wasn't just kind of this time it was actually over the vo Vox cast and they was talking about something named Nurglith, Nurglith, Nurglith. So they finally make Planetfall. They think it's dead. Surprise! Plague zombies everywhere. And this is where Horus, who confronts Eugene Temba and gets himself uh, wounded by Eugene Temba, who mysteriously has uh, something that ha he got from the first book, the Kienenbrach, or a specific blade made by the, well, stolen from the Interrex. Yeah, my my uh, Greek is or Latin is no good, but I think Kienenbrach means something um, claw. Um, yeah. Something I, I know, brach is, or branch is claw, but mm. um, so someone else translate that. <laughs> so we cut, so we have that part, and, and Horus gets mortally wounded because basically the blade, if you whisper its name to it, it, it'll design itself to make the person the perfect poison to take down anything, even a primarch. And this is kind of where drama finally starts to pick up because it's like because the legion is worried about what if Horus dies. This is where yeah, he he basically keels over and falls, and um, this is uh, continuing from the trend of the first book, where you have a a first sentence which wrong foots you, which was I was there when Horace fell, and mm -hmm. then that turned out to be him tripping over his shoelaces, um, although, <laughs> although he is dying, so there is that too. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if there's really too much to discuss in this one. This 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 part is full of a lot of bolter porn. It's very much, look at Hulk, look at how cool the space marines are, you know, blowing up zombies, stabbing them with chainswords, uh, slicing well, that, them in half. Look at the Titan. That's the thing that really got me about this book, like with like that bolter porn. Like in the first book, you have them fighting um, people. Uh, and they fight like three times. Yeah. And they're portrayed, the people are portrayed very deliberately almost in this way that they're almost like unpeople against like this actual named army. And then that, that kind of mm -hmm. is, is is juxtaposed where at the end of the novel you have um, two sort of forces that you both know both sides of being almost manipulated to fight against each other for no other reason other than war is how it is. Um, and in this book, it's just nameless, faceless zombies where you have no remorse in killing them and there's no uh, value in it. That's the kind of violence that is the worst kind of violence. You don't... Any writer worth their, their salt is never going to write like a, a battle scene for the sake of having a battle scene. The way battle scenes are fun and interesting is the tension between the characters. If you have shit characters, I'm sorry, I don't give a fuck about your battle scene. See, I, th I thought this was kind of okay. Like uh, compared, to, bearing in mind I haven't read any of the the other ones, and compared to later battle scenes in this, I thought mm, maybe it's just because yeah. I had quite good images in my head of all this because. I don't know, I'm playing through Dark Souls right now. I'm stuck in a swamp, and it's you know kind of similar stuff. But you're like, I, I am Logan. Yeah, I thought this wasn't like terribly written, and there was a a, a, a kind of tension to it. But because you know, another way to do yeah, there was another way of, to do battles is just like an implacable horde just rolling over you like in Starship Troopers, and that, and mm -hmm. that's a, and you know even though they're completely mismatched and any one space wing can take down 20 plague zombies there's still another 200 plague zombies so yeah, i i didn't think this was entirely terrible i mean the, the later battles are, are kind of just no it, no it's and then we won the war yeah it no it's not it's not bad it's just more it's just more disappointing especially after we kind of read the horus rising sort of stuff and how personal and it was kind of witness showing 
the destructive power of it, but from a more showing how horrific that power was versus this was very male fantasy, uh, male power fantasy kind of levels of just kind of yeah. punching zombies faces through with your fist, which is fine, but it's not the most compelling thing. Yeah. Well, you know, you had a few cutaways where they did establish actual stakes. So I agree with Gareth in that it functioned reasonably well. Um, it also, I guess we can give it points in the most backhanded way for having uh, the most pointless uh, plot element, which is um, Petronella Viva intersecting with an even more pointless plot element, the Titan, where the Titan shoots her ship down because she's so gung-ho about seeing the battle, she decides to take a trip and then crashes into <laughs> the middle of all these zombies. So um, from what I can tell, this is the, the only intersection between the two other storylines which have almost no intersection in terms of the rest of the story. Yeah. Uh, the the, yeah. the part about part two that I did like was the confrontation between Horace and Eugene Temba. That was interesting. Uh, because that was oh, my, my absolute favorite line in the whole book occurred in that, which is where a thick gruel is infected blood and hot fat and fat spilling onto the deck, like a thick gruel of infected blood. <laughs> so fucking cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm partial to the the bit where he describes the trailing entrails as a debutante's dress uh, as she struts down the stairs. Oh yeah, that's right. That <laughs> was like, a good one. It's like yeah. he suddenly discovered how to write for just a really brief <laughs> moment. Uh, well, yeah. Writers tend to have fun with Nurgle. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, all all the chaos gods are, are just brilliant, like gristle for writing stuff. Something seems which you just have to kind of be weird for, but mm -hmm. um, you can do like you can do so much cool stuff with them. Mm. I think like the best thing about that was like you had a good character interaction where you have um you know you have that that really you have the really good descriptors of what's going on really good imagery but also it's with you have um almost Horace facing the fact that he just kind of left this guy on this planet kind of to die and like this sort of like abandonment thing it's not really gone too much in detail I wish it was more where it's like I feel like almost it's cheated a little bit at the end where he like converts afterwards. He's like, oh man, I was warped by chaos rather than just being like unapologetic. Like, no, you left me. This is who I am now. This is what you've done to me. And then he kills him or something like that. And then it's just like, it takes a toll on it, on like his, his psyche. <clears throat> and it, it's so bizarre that they, the, that Nurgle does this. I mean, so the chaos gods want Horus on their side. They want to convert yes. him. But yes, the first time he he meets an actual demon, the it's possessed his one of his friends. It nearly kills him. That's not how you convert a guy. You know? Why, why well, didn't the chaos god show him like a really great side of? Him? <laughs> well, I I think that kind of that uh, Eugene Temba was corrupted by Nurgle just kind of was like going to happen regardless sort of deal because they were they went to they didn't go into as much detail as would have been nice, but. That he was he was stewing on just kind of like this resentment, this hatred, as like what he talks about in his final moments when Horace is like, "I did this to you," and then you Temba's like, "No, no, you know, I had all these negative emotions. Um, I hated you. I hated what you did to me." Sort of stuff. So, uh, I mean, and to be fair, Horace is because the Emperor is a total tool bag and a total idiot. He didn't tell him about the power of the warp or the chaos gods at all because yeah. the emperor thought that was the best thing so you're you're right if if horace knew about the chaos gods then yes this would be a horrible horrible first impression uh trying to get them on their side but the thing is like horace is working from a place of ignorance at this point he knows that the warp exists and that it can manifest in different ways 
but he doesn't know about the chaos gods because the emperor's you know locked himself up in Terra and is working uh working on his grand device which will be covered later yeah but i yeah. mean eventually he's gonna find out who nurgle is and he's gonna go oh wait that was the guy who killed one of my friends mm. and nearly killed me <laughs> yeah uh listen all according to cacao all according to plan listen uh, the, the chaos gods are geniuses uh they can't be criticized at all <laughs> and ev ev everything they do is perfect so so this is so but this sets up probably the best sections of the book i'm not gonna call mm -hmm. them great but they're good bordering on very good so horace gets wounded by the keenan brach uh because eugene temba like even though he's like a pussy uh worm sort of deal like like with the blade basically gives him like the skills of like a primark sort of deal and it manages to wound him it basically gives him what seems like just like a little stab in the shoulder piercing the armor and that's what manages to fell horus and he uh and he passes out and basically the mornival has to take him onto the ship and uh you know i'm gonna let you guys describe what exactly happens on the ship when the Mornival <laughs> gets uh, on the the Mornival in the Vengeful Spirit, I'll let you guys handle that. <laughs> uh, I believe the time is they go full Tiananmen, but um... yeah, it was just like like in the first book, you have Loken is almost like this uh, gentle giant uh, kind of man who doesn't really want to be a part of all this killing, and then in this book, he just fucking fucking kills people, he just murders them. Just for for no reason other than like they're trying to get Horus away and they're trying to get Horus. Um, it just it, it just it just it's so nonsensical and it's just like such a character like assassin like like we said before like a character assassination. Um. So yeah, this reminded me uh, a lot of of Hillsborough, which obviously did happen before this was published. I, I'm curious whether it was a conscious illusion. Um. And could be. Yeah. Though this plays quite mechanistically. And this is my main criticism of it, um, uh, especially from the point of view where we'll get to. Loken does not even <laughs> he doesn't even acknowledge this until someone brings it up, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, I guess I did do that. Probably shouldn't have done that." <laughs> I, guess, I guess I did just trample over like hundreds of civilians, watching their bones break. Uh, and the only real human perspective you get is Carcassi <laughs> and Mercedes. Was, don't you hate it when you, like walk over civilians and accidentally kill them? <laughs> it's emblematic of the book in that it's an interesting uh, plot detail, which he's clearly trying to utilize, and it doesn't quite stick to the landing. Um, but so yeah, they, the, this is kind of the big disaster that accompanies transferring Horus to sickbay, and mm. when he's there, he, he basically gives uh, the the reason why we've got Petronella is he gets to share all his various resentments at the other Primarchs, which is. An expository moment, which this book is full of, but I don't know about you guys. I found it at least illuminating. Mm, yeah, I, I think it's kind of it's almost setting up for like future books sort of deal. It's to set up, hey, you know, the Primarchs weren't really this band of brothers. We were bickering. We were annoyed with each other. They weren't all happy with my uh, ascension to Warmaster. So that kind of stuff. But even then, that's not essential for how long it goes on. And the only other point of it really is that it kind of spurs Carcassi's uh, second uh, change of heart, where he decides, you know, this is this is my inspiration, this is my muse, and I'm going to write about the horrors of the Adeptus Astartes. But yeah, the truth is all we have. He basically becomes like a a, a, a dangerous reporter, um, but mm. also a, a poet, I guess. Um, and yeah, as we're talking about in <laughs> in yeah, as we're talking about interesting um, uh, story elements, the the debate. 
that because because yeah, essentially you have the um, extreme kind of uh, frazzlement <laughs> to use a technical term that the uh, Starthes and everyone else goes by with the fact that the the War Master Horus is dying, which leads to them being manipulated by Erebus. Uh, and I don't know if you guys want to. So who wants to take that bit? Oh, what Erebus? Yeah. So <laughs> what what is the plan here, and what's kind of the central conflict between the various Mournville? So basically, what happens is. The, the Warrior Lodge that was kind of previously described in uh, Horus Rising. Ba the Warrior's Lodge convenes without Loken and uh, with Torgadon, with uh, Abaddon, Axeman, Torgadon. They basically decide with the uh, convincing of Erebus, they're like, okay, uh, the Apothecaries can't do anything. Uh, Vadin has said that they're not able to do anything. So they're out of options. Like the the, the Primarch's physiology is beyond the knowledge of a basic Astartes. So Erebus convenes it that they should go to the priests of Davin. And they're kind of like, oh, what? You know, this is magic. This is religion. Religion is bad. This is against the emperor's light. But they kind of say, they say they're like, okay, we're going to sit, we're going to take them there. They can, they can heal them. And this kind of leads to the point where they just like spirit him away on the Davin to the priest of the serpent where they decide to heal Horus. And then this is what leads into that dream sequence you were talking about, Danny. <laughs> Yeah, basically what ends up happening is um, Horus falls for, like, Horus gets an email and he sees, what, there's actually a Nigerian prince here? Damn, uh, better give him all my fucking money. He falls for, like, really obvious, like, exploitation, um, even when it's fucking told to him that, hey, you're being exploited, idiot. Uh yeah, Magnus comes. <laughs> it's the uh, a, a Christmas Carol, basically, where you've got uh, Erebus the, of a Christmas past, where he goes to to show that um, the Emperor was actually an uncaring dude who who kind of uh, made made a warp pack to create them and just didn't really give a shit when they scattered. And then also, you they travel to a uh, a pilgrim planet in the future, where it where people are worshiping the Emperor. And so Erebus, who is disguised at this point as um, a deceased friend of Horace's, is like, oh, see, he's, he's trying to turn himself into a god and you're not there. Um, and yeah. all this is is kind With of goading Horus. Yes. Um, and yeah, as, as you mentioned, uh, you, you've got kind of the third point where Magnus comes, who is communicating, uh, try, trying to get into the warp to uh, to stop Horace from falling. Um, yeah. Which comes to what is the most ridiculous scene that kind of puts this whole um, uh, where he just starts Magda starts uh, chucking fireballs at uh, Erebus for about five minutes straight, and Horus is just standing there with with like an aghast face, and Magnus doesn't notice that Horus is just look at him like, "What the fuck are you doing, mate?" Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Gareth, what what did, how did you feel about this whole uh, dream sequence? This was definitely a standout part of the book, so yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts so were about terrible. it. Terrible, I, I dream. Dream sequences are always bad. There's no, <laughs> there's never been a good dream sequence in any work of fiction in the entire history right. of the human as, race. As a fan but, of David Lynch, I have to disagree, but <laughs> I, I, but you're a guest, so I'll let you go on. Yeah, because dreams are very idiosyncratic. They, they, everyone has their own dream language. They're all different. You can't like do a dream sequence that actually looks like a dream sequence, except to you. But um, yeah, this was just like. Yeah, it, it was, as I mentioned, like the Simpsons episode where Homer eats the, the crazy chili and goes to meet his spirit guide. And it even has a wolf spirit guide in it. Who Literally, is yeah. Mm -hmm. but, um, oh, who has red skin. Oof. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
He actually drinks the fire water and then goes to the reservation to find his spirit guide. One of the really cool things is just before it starts where Erebus has to like get into the spirit realm. And he does this by um, sacrificing one of the acolytes of the snake priests to all the four chaos gods by oh, yeah. cutting mm. their throat to betray them for Zinch mm. and corn because blood. But also the acolyte was previously... A lover. Yeah. Um, and they eat their heart. Yeah, but previously had a unlovely coupling of the doomed acolyte with a diseased swine had called upon the power of the Dark Prince and Lord of Decay. So that acolyte had to have sex with a diseased pig. We've got to be grimdark, Gary. You, you can't make this up. You can't write this stuff. And just, just, yeah, just lovely stuff. So, um, all the stars align to make the perfect sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Just really, really great stuff here. Good, good job, Graham and Neil. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, this is the most pivotal moment of Warhammer Forty K. This yes. is when this is when it all happens, and if the next ten thousand years are decided within these minutes that are described here, and all because that guy fucked a pig. Yeah, it, one yeah. it involves pig fucking, so the whole uh, of the Games Workshop universe is tainted from here on with pig fucking. <laughs> you, you know, maybe um, maybe Black Mirror got their idea from uh, Horace Heresy. Uh, well, and maybe David life. Cameron read a lot of Warhammer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. David Cameron wasn't joining a um, like a secret dining club at Cambridge. He was actually going for a job at a Games Workshop store, and yeah. uh, this was his initiation. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, to, to move on to more savory matters. Um, yeah, the, the dream sequence. The dream sequence. Yeah. The, the arguments that Erebus and um, Magnus make, where they basically lay out the reasons he could either stay with the Emperor or join with chaos mm. are super weak. They're yeah. very uncompelling. Oh, Erebus is obviously lying again because he mm. can't do lies properly. Yeah. Um, he even changes his form so he doesn't look like Erebus. So he looks like his previous sergeant who died in Horus Rising, Haster Sejanus. Yeah. And then when he gets called in, he's like, oh, no, you're right. I am actually Erebus, but I just lied <laughs> to you for a little while. Um, we did. Yeah, we good. Okay. Like I was saying, uh, there's these four powers in the warp that are beyond all human imagination. And uh, in, you should uh, betray your father uh, and God to uh, because of these four guys who I just like hang out with sometimes. And um, they're really cool, though. You love them. Um, one of them. They're did, chill. They're chill. Yeah, they're really, really chill dudes. You know, they all just hang out, really great guys. Uh, mm. And yeah, one of them did just kill one of your friends and try and murder you a few like minutes ago. But um, <laughs> We're going to leave that out. We're going to leave that out. Yeah. It's, yeah, it strikes me that you're right. When Horus basically, uh, the big twist at the end of the, the third dream sequence is, I'm not actually as fucking stupid as you think, because I've in fact noticed Erebus is a liar. But Magnus is also a liar. So who do I really trust? And it's like, well, the degrees yeah. of lying. Magnus is breaking a treaty to be there magically. But the Erebus yeah. is just the, the degrees of manipulation. Trust him as your dead friend. <laughs> like, literally got into your dead friend's corpse to try to manipulate you. Like, what the fuck? Like, what? Yeah. Sort of be like, no. oh, we got to think about this. No, hmm. no. no. Hor Horace is the radical centrist, you know, where we have Magnus on the other side saying free health care. But uh, he punched the Nazi. And uh, Erebus on the other side is for the extermination of things. And Horus is like, these are both equal to me. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Like, Erebus had like, just eaten someone's heart. And yeah. Horus is like, 
who can say which of these is the right path to go down? The um, <laughs> emperor yeah. or the uh, evil gods from beyond the universe? Yeah, his little brother, his his literal brother, who the only thing he did wrong was break the Treaty of Nakea, which like was like the emperor didn't even explain properly to them. It's just like, oh yeah, these are some rules. The emperor's like, yeah, don't do magic. I always yeah. break something when I go to IKEA. Yeah. Ban for the podcast. I deserve it. <laughs> but okay, yeah. So we have the dream sequence and we end on the cliffhanger. Like as if we don't know what's gonna happen. Horace is like, I don't uh, both of you are liars. He goes like I'm gonna make up my own mind. I'm gonna choose the set the 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 pat the third option. This is what the way Horace makes it sound. The third way is chaos. Um Yeah. Yeah, the third way is still chaos. <laughs> Congrats. And so Horus is reborn. Uh, he comes out of the Serpent Temple. And of course, the Mornoval is rejoicing, overwhelmed that their father has returned to the land of the living. But not all is the same. And we enter the easily weakest part of the book. Can we? Yes, because that's so short. Can we quickly hit on the Lecticio Divinitatis um, subplot that we go through here? Because that is also kind of... Um, it, it is important, but it's like, oh, God, there's so many subplots in this book. Yeah, basically, uh, Keela, the the remembrancer, who who was um, kind of struggling with with uh, the things she saw last uh, book, is the now trauma become of a, heads. yes. She's now become like a uh, a cultist of the emperor, um, and this kind of culminates with with Cinderman, uh, who is is meant to be this kind of um, this this like noble patriarch who, who knows all the, the 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 clever stuff. He he's read theory basically. Um, is what I'm getting. At. He's he's in the library, and they end up accidentally summoning a uh, a, a pink horror uh, who um, almost kills them. But then Keela basically exorcises it. Yeah, the power of Christ compels you. She literally, the power of Christ compels this demon. Like like you think like oh you know he's he's having an exaggeration. She doesn't really power. She goes the power of Christ compels you, except it's the emperor. She literally yeah, takes I'm out like takes out her double headed imperial eagle. Goes the emperor protects, and the and the demon's like ah no no the emperor protects for some and reason. And I think Gareth, you had some interesting stuff to say about Cinderman, right? Yeah. So well, I'm not going to say it's interesting. I'm going to say it, then it will become interesting. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's this um there's this sequence where Loken talks to Cinderman early, quite early before the snake temple bit, where basically Loken goes to Cinderman and says. Uh, Horus is going to a temple. There's a snake on this temple. <laughs> what up with that? <laughs> yes. And um, Cinnamon basically goes into this like long narrative of how snakes are used in various cultures. Uh, myths were, weren't originally expressed in verbal written form because language is deemed inadequate to convey the truth. And, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and um, they managed to figure out snakes equal serpents, serpents equal dragons, dragons equal chaos. It, it was Leads chaos to the dark side. Along. Yeah. Although, uh, on that note of the dark side, I think Anakin's fall to the dark side is honestly more believable oh, than it is. Yeah. It is. It is. Many, many times. Yeah. Uh, this is a good example of kind of like Loken's being a total dumbass in this book. So basically, uh, Cinderman quotes a section from the Bible. Uh, so it's called the Book of. He does no because it's the yeah. book of it's the book of Adam, and he basically quotes the the Horus thing where it's basically I am the destroyer of worlds. 
I am unto death and sort of stuff. And Logan's like, what does it mean? What does it mean? <laughs> He's like shaking Cinderman violently, <laughs> even though it's like, it's, even though it just says, it says Horace will destroy the thing. He'll destroy everything good sort of stuff. Like in plain English, like this isn't like some language that they're trying to decrypt. It's just like, in, well, plain Gothic. It's just like Horace will destroy everything. He'll, he'll betray everyone. And Logan's just like, what does it mean? And Cinderman's like, I don't know what it means. You know, it's just gibberish, really. What does it mean? And then he, then he talks about ancient culture for like 30 minutes. Yeah, he's quoting from the uh, Egyptian Book of the Dead. Oh, so that's not the not the Bible, Bible, but um, he's I think he has the Bible, but um, yeah, there's like an actual bit in the Egyptian Book of the Dead which reads like this. And um, yeah, I am Horus, the oldest gods who gave. I am he who gave way to chaos. I am the great destroyer of all, uh, and so on. Yeah, and that's kind of I think that's quoted directly from the Egyptian, uh, some Egyptian book. Because Horus is also bad in Egypt, but Egypt yeah. land as well. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it's kind of like um, early uh, Jordan Peterson meets kind of like Dan Brown, where they just oh, put geez. the symbols together and um, suddenly come to realizations that move the plot forward because they wouldn't have moved the plot forward otherwise. Except it doesn't move the plot forward because everything in the lodge happens, even though Loki knows that this is bad stuff happening. Yeah, so Logan's kind of constantly all. aware that Erebus is like he even knows that Erebus stole the the uh, anathane because he basically admits to it in in a flashback where he mentions uh, what it was and he never he never said what was stolen. Um, he so he's kind of chest. but yeah he he just he basically plays his cards very much to his chest um, because he can't work out exactly what's going on, but he knows pretty much a lot of the shady shit that is happening. He just sort of keeps his mouth shut. Yeah, I can't say. <laughs> yeah, it, like Torgadon, like, yeah, both Loken and Torgadon are both like, yeah, Erebus, Erebus sucks because anyone with two eyes could tell this version of Erebus sucks and that he's evil as shit. But yeah, when you've like, got Stefan Molyneux with like Sharpie scrawled all over your face, you kind of know <laughs> what you're getting. Yeah. Um, and that's how they summoned the demon was by reading the the text from the uh, they tra translated the Book of Lorgar from the from the face of uh, from face of Erebus and that summons a demon and that never comes back. It's never just like oh that's a little weird that the Book of Lorgar that he gave to Horus so happens to summon demons when you read him. There's so many threads. We've all had tattoos we regret. You know, it was kind of bizarre when Erebus was talking about the fall of Western civilization and just kept going back to Rome, but like, <laughs> yeah. And then, he, then he read this, you know, it's so obvious that this, that like, uh, yeah. Okay, let's get the book four. I mean, part yeah. four. This is which the is worst just tying part. stuff up. Yeah. It, it's, it's yeah. It, this is like like part three is when it like part one and two are all right, and then you have some things where it's like okay, you know, you bolt porn and stuff like that. You know, ah, part three is where it starts to go off the rails, and part four it's just ah, fuck I, I it. don't know. I, I sort of like part three, but part four is yeah. yeah. Part three has I, yeah. I think part three has some, I mean, like the the argument part is stupid, but just kind of watching the okay. The thing is bad, but part four is basically just Graham McNeil. He, it's somebody just told him you have ten minutes to finish this book, and this is this is yeah. what he dumps out. Yeah, the paper's due by midnight, and it's eleven o'clock. So gotta pad that word count and like finish everything up. So Horus basically starts another war with another human alike. Uh, they seem to be basically like Mechanicum similar ones because they have like tech priests and they have cogs and stuff and Horus basically starts it because like they have peace talks but he blows the head off of the leader which leads to a long grueling war with um, this society and he's doing yeah. it to get the access to the STC replicator machines to eventually start his war against the emperor 
Yeah, uh, Angron is there. Like, um, were those actually like built up before? Because like STCs were not mentioned in the previous like book. To no. this book. Were they mentioned no, in one. Horse Rising or anything? No. Nope. Okay. This is just dropped here. Um, so we got we got a MacGuffin. We just don't know. Yeah. Why it's important or we're kind of expected to have read the backstory. Yeah. I, I think the I, I inferred that it's the important it's what secures the alliance with the uh, Mechanicum. Mechanicum. But the problem with that is the securing an alliance with the Mechanicum is not an especially important plot point and you it's very easily missed. So that's kind of the entire the entire reasoning for part four revolves mm. around that and it's yeah. not special. Yeah, they introduced the Regulus, who has never been a character into these books until now. So he's just like, Regulus is there. He's like, ooh, STC mm -hmm. machines. And the other part behind it, too, is because uh, it can replicate uh, Astarte's armor. Yeah, I think Regulus might have been in Horse Rising, though. I could be wrong. Um, uh, if but, he is, he's barely in it. Yeah, just a little bit. But yeah, so you, you have this this uh, war, and uh, Loken and Torgadon are now kind of split from Abaddon and um, Aximan, the other half of the Mournival. In terms of uh, the the former are not happy with Horace being so kill crazy, and the latter uh, have sort of bought in. They're part of this large. They're all about it, um, and they are loyal to the Warmaster above all. They bought into the pyramid scheme. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like um, so what what do we want to hit first? Because we've got the um, kind of the the lodge uh, story coming to an end. That that might be one of them, or should we do the war? They're both. I guess quick to do. Um, I I kind of just want to touch on the rem remembrancers, Carcassi and uh, uh, Petronella. Let's that's that's yeah. Let's just do the lodge first. Okay, so we have the first lodge, and this is the part where no Torgan has already left at that point. Yeah, Torgan has left the lodge because they were basically planning on throwing Loken under the bus for the murder of all the civilians when the Mournival came onto the Vengeful Spirit to get Horace into the Apothecarium. So, so and there's an army commander point. who is kind of gunning for them, uh, you know, being quite, quite sensibly pissed off about the massacre. Yeah, and he Hec keeps saying Hector yeah, Hector us. So he's uh, he's problem one, I guess, and problem two is Cargacy spreading the, the the true part of it to mm -hmm. uh, to the people on the ship. Yep, and this is kind of where we get to a point of redundancy from Graham McNeil. That was just so we have the thing where the the, the lodge is like, okay, here are our problems. It's one one is Varvarus. And two is Carcassi. So doing all this stuff. And then we have the second Lodge meeting, which happens in part four, where Horace shows up and they're like surprised. They're like, oh, even though Horace knew about the Lodge, like, oh, Hor Horace has shown up. And he basically asks the Lodge for a pledge of loyalty to him above all else, which they agree. And he basically restates the exact same problems that the Lodge had already found, which was Carcassi and Hector Varvarus. Yeah. So it's entirely redundant. Like specifically on the euphemism, so uh, they're talking to Torgadon and they're like, "We need to illuminate him. We need him taken care of." And that's supposed to be really dramatic, you know. That's, this is all Godfathership. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is like a gangster film. So you know, we're supposed to be excited by this. Like, oh my god, what's going to happen? Obviously, kill subterfuge. And, Ooh. Yes, and then then Horace turns up. Who they've said, "Oh yeah, this comes from Horace," and he's like, "We need to take care of them. We need them illuminated." And so it's like the the euphemistic cliffhanger is not especially effective if he's just restating the exact same shit that another character said like a few pages previously. <laughs> and the Lodge already wanted. Like, that yeah. was explicit. And they, they said, like, oh, Horace already gave it to us. So either the point is that Horace, uh, the Lodge was lying to Torgadon and saying that they, Horace actually gave these orders, or it, that it's like they gave it and it's just Graham McNeil giving a totally redundant scene that's to and completely pointless, except for that it transitions into 
the the final acting out of those desires. But yeah, so Gareth, um, we've been talking about like mean spirited approaches to female characters. Uh, what do you think about Petronella and her storyline wrap up and Carcassy too? Ah, uh, Carcassy, I can barely remember. But um, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, um, oh, my God, kills him. Yeah, my God. Right. Yeah. You, you, your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So Maga kills him. Um, yeah. Petronella just she she's always been such a, a weak character and very. Um, this is obviously written for a male audience. I think we yes. can we can agree yeah. on that. It's it's written yes. by bros for bros. And she has, she's written in a way that you're, that bros are supposed to look down on her and see how silly and inconsequential she is and see how when she wants to become powerful and uh, it's dumb and silly because she's a girl, but when you know, Horace wants to become powerful, he's awesome. And he's got great wide set eyes and so on. Mm. But um, hey, He's a badass. Yeah. When, yeah. It, it's, the, it's the constant thing you have with all misogyny, which is when I goes crazy and gets angry he's being cool and he's like john wick but when uh woman, she's emotional yeah she's emotional she's on her period yeah so, so he he basically kills her and horace can does. i just horace uh, does. yes yes hmm. can i actually like ask a quick because I, I honestly don't know i may be wrong on this there's a scene earlier that we didn't mention where carcassi listens to petronella spill the beans about all the like nasty little gossip that she got from Horace when he was on his deathbed. About and this the is the reason yeah. why, yeah, this is the reason why Horace is killing her because he, he he showed her his dark soul, so she must die. She learned um, too much. Yeah. yeah. What is the point of Carcassi knowing all this? Because he There's... gets killed too. He never mentions it in his poems. Is there something I'm missing about this? Nope, it's just oh, pointless. Yeah. Just plot hole. Okay. There, there, yeah. There, there are yeah. many. Yeah, he doesn't even put it into his a uh, whatever his stupid fucking pamphlet. Or what is the truth or whatever it's called? The truthful set facts is all we have. Tra- facts the truth care about your feelings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, why? Why won't? Why won't uh, Ao Cetris uh, debate me? Um, <laughs> yeah. Getting into subreddit deep lore. Um, uh, yeah. Heretics and how to destroy them and so on. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, so yeah, Horace snaps her neck in a very kind of. Yeah, a very yeah, another mean spirited scene, mm-hmm. and it's got it's got to be sexualized. You know, can't have a guy killing a woman without it being horribly sexualized. Yeah, what, she's just yeah, she's like exposed it. in her like casual clothes and stuff, and he's just kind of coming in first. She's like, "Ooh, uh, big strong man," and then he's taking advantage of that with his charisma, and he just basically puts his hands on his shoulders and then gives a good old snap. Yeah, that, I mean that's that's the sort of thing where it's like um, in the first book you have that scene with mercedes and loken where it's like loken like cannot even kind of fathom like the idea of like being in love with a woman and that sort of idea of just so much of a questions of like asexuality really and looking at things from like that perspective and then you have this book where it's like everything has to be sexual Mm. yeah the, the, the horniness is seemingly be turned up on this which is weird for a book that's the majority of characters in this are virgins Mm -hmm. So much like the readers, okay. So, and the, the, the last, the last part is the um, a, a, a attack on the technocracy, uh, so that way they can get the STC machines. Uh, they send Torgadon and Loki to the front, so that way they could probably die, which is heavily suggested. Uh, Angron is there from the world eaters, so basically, a mine goes off and it looks like Angron's been killed as well as most of the world eaters. And Hector Varvaris is up there with the technocracy to 
make peace. The technocracy basically calls them barbarians and savages. We hope you rule more better than you uh, wage war. Like you kind of get across like, oh, well, maybe because because the world leaders just absolutely are actual barbarians and just like uh, kill main berm as it goes. But and then Angron, just the last in the last minute, see that's almost comical, really. He bursts from the uh, he it, bursts from the rubble, and, and he's just like, ah, oh, for Horus. <laughs> that that it, it's 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 very comical. It came but, off as that. It, it's not said, but I imagine he's nude when doing this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually uh, the version I was reading from the the latest. Uh, a uh, book you can download. It actually has a thing. He is unfortunately not nude, so the horniness oh, is, is turned down. There is an illustration of it, and then yeah, basically somebody takes the opportunity to put a bullet into Hector Varvaris because at first they think it's an accident, like you know he just got caught in the crossfire. But Loken and Torgan realize that no, he was shot with a bolter on purpose, basically square in the head. And the book ends with Horus being like, "I'm going to wage war against the Emperor and become the new Emperor of Mankind." Yeah, how, how did you feel about that scene? <laughs> God, oh, that, Jesus. it was just like, you know, we could end like, on like something ambiguous where it's like, ooh, what's going to happen next? He's just like, hey, if you guys didn't realize, uh, at the end of this book, I'm evil. Uh, okay? It's cool. Yeah, it was incredibly dumb. It's not a good scene. The, the part yeah. four is not a good book. It's just like, oh, shit, we got to end this. Yeah, and everyone in he's talking to is just totally chill with it. They've been fighting and dying for the Emperor all their lives. They were born for this. And then he's just like, you, you want to just betray everything? Right. I, I've met these awesome chaos gods. They're, they're chill dudes. Uh, they're way more chill than the Emperor. Let's just be chaos space marines now. Sorry, chaos Astartes, because we're on Astartes now. I mean, to give like a little bit of credit to McNeil, that is kind of like a point like Horace is not so post the resurrection. He's kind of like nudge, nudge, wink, wink to Axiom or Gadden. I mean, uh, Abaddon. He's basically like, hey, uh, you'll follow me to anything, right? And they're like, of course totally he's like you'll follow me no matter what like oh yeah totally of course we will he's like good he does that like a few times very just like nudge nudge wink wink ribbing the shoulders ribbing the shoulders yeah, yeah i mean i can totally see about him doing it not just because you know we know he how he ends up but just because he's a total psycho who just wants to kill stuff but yeah like, he's basically every, like yeah. everyone else just kind of seems like regular regular folk for you know nine foot tall Virgin. regular start is regulus the regular that's what they call them yeah they're having they're having a normal one they're having an incredibly <laughs> normal one and yeah he's and um yeah horse just kind of fucks it up by converting him t- to his like non-crusade against the emperor which doesn't even have a particularly compelling reason at all yeah and of course he's got this big massive plan they're like oh how are we going to wage war against the imperium with all these uh, other legions he's like don't worry he's like uh, our one legion in the Mechanicum will totally take on all of uh, all 17 other legions. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. we just got to make sure to play 2,000 points games only so they can't you know, bring too much, and then we'll be fine. Yeah, just then we'll, keep... be, we'll be fine. I'm, I'm surprised the book didn't really end on go like, uh, it didn't end like how the Forest Rising did. It's like, where's our next stop? Oh, wait, no, it does. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it literally does. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I was words. about to... I was about to give it credit, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, wait, no, it does end on the dumbest way possible. It's like, next on our way. On heresy. Yeah, it, it's like, next we're going to the Istvan system. Just like how Horus Rising ended with Dolphin and stuff. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Clearly not understanding like the, the big difference between the two endings where it's like Davin, where it's like, ooh, I'm actually invested. What's going to happen on Davin? I don't know. Where it's like this one, it's just like, 
uh, oh, where to now, boss? Uh, let's go to Istvan. Uh. <laughs> I don't think this ruins the the entire series of books. It's just like subpar compared to Horus Rising. But so, closing thoughts, guys. Let's hear from from Gareth first. Yeah. So yeah, uh, my opinions on this have surprisingly not changed. It's badly <laughs> written, poorly paced. Very few things make sense. There are gaping plot holes, and it's let's do some politics now. Uh, it's deeply, deeply conservative. Like Horace's problems with the empire, uh, he explains, is the bureaucrats and red tape and mm -hmm. warriors like him not being given their due. Mm -hmm. uh, their due being only to be revered as gods by everyone at all times. It, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's, it's a Blue Lives Matter meme. Well, it's, it's almost like even... Even then, it's like this idea of, uh, you know, what if I think the Imperium, like the military, would be so much better if it was privatized and in like private hands, which is. He tries to undercut that with uh, with Space Marine Hillsborough, but then he doesn't follow through properly. Yeah, horse would get Hillsborough right. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's um, there's so much conservatism in this. Like, I, I mean, like small C conservatism, like like the Tory Party in the UK, for example. Not like the crazy Trumpist, Bannonist kind of you'd get nowadays. It's not like alt right it's stuff. It's not like UKIP, yeah. Yeah, it, it's um, yeah, it, it's like fairly close to being centrist, but a bit more like yeah, you know, it's taxes. reactionary. It's yeah, it, it's just you're, you're plain reactionary, mm -hmm. and um, that, that even down to like the. Some of the ideas like that humanity will always need uh, myths and religion uh, because the actions of individuals, even individuals like Horus, are in insufficient compared to the great um, mass of culture and the knowledge of previous generations that we always carry forward. That's why we can't have things like revolutions because they will always fail and so on. Yeah, it's basically like the conservative argument going back all the way to the French Revolution. That anything humans try to do is going to fail. Therefore, we must take solace in our myths and shared heritage. Yeah, and um, which yeah, and by having Horus set out on his own to to be the go new god emperors, kind of he's been like the um, he's been like the French revolutionaries or the november revolution or anyone who's tried to change the system has ended up failing it, it's basically it's the same conservative idea you get in like i know fight club they're trying to uh <laughs> change the world with bombs and it they end up being even worse fascists yeah, or, the movie the movie uh, not the book <laughs> yeah or black black panther um you know uh killmonger wants to set the world on fire to to redress the uh everything that's happened racism. To, yeah yeah and that's bad and you can't do that you have to take things slowly and measured steps and the cia are good uh, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, it's it's the same conservative argument here again and again even in game of thrones you remember that that end scene uh, more spoilers on by the way where sam yeah. suggests oh we'll just make um westeros a democracy and everyone just laughs at him mm. It's the same it's the same conservative impulse that you always get in fiction because we we live in like a capitalist realist and government realist world where any sort of revolutionary change is going to be looked down upon and this is this is more of that it's just more anti anti-change porn mm. yeah more of the same and not well written we truly live in a society mm. yeah it, it's yeah, we... we live in society we can't change <laughs> our society so why even try uh alex yeah. uh danny i'll start with danny uh final thoughts on the book book uh has the big dumb that's all i gotta say 
<laughs> Alex? I will give it a uh, 53.5% out of 100. Uh, not quite fresh Rotten Tomato score, but I'm really glad we had such a masculine, handsome, wide-set-eyed guest uh, as, as Gareth to help us through it. Oh, thank yeah. you. My eyes, my eyes are notably wide-set. It's... Uh... I got a lot of family in Innsmouth, so I've got a little bit of Innsmouth. <laughs> very wide set. A little bit of gills going on. It's quite a... Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a big fat no for me. Uh, badly written, as you said, incredibly reactionary and incredibly sexist too. Just like unbelievably sexist in the book. Yeah, like, that, that really gilds it, to be honest. Like we didn't even talk about the scene where Carcassy uh, is like trying to seduce like a, a social climber and then he's like, oh, fuck off. And then that's that's the last moment. It, it can be summed up in women, women bad, women always, women be trying to climb with through men and sex. Yeah, and the, the patriarchal reactionary racism that happens between Maggard and Petronella is just at, abhorrent and disgusting. <laughs> it's unbelievable that McNeil didn't even think about that. So, if you're a black library author who wants to come on our show, um, yeah, Graham, you... Graham, come on. Uh, after we just eviscerated your book, yeah, Graham, when will you come on? After after we said you wrote a, and I quote Sam, uh, you wrote a bad book and you should feel bad. Come on our show, you know. Okay, uh, let's let's end on something positive. Uh, let's talk about. Let's give a band suggestion. Let's all give a band suggestion, maybe preferably metal, uh, for no other for no particular reason. Uh, nope. uh, well, this ties into the something we like. We talk about music is maths, as of course. Oh yes, Horace very famously, music is maths. Quote from him. <laughs> Gareth, what's what's a what's a band that you would recommend that and that maybe get get out your frustration after reading this uh, book? Bolt thrower, always bolt thrower, thousand times bolt thrower, bolt thrower forever. Okay, so bolt thrower are one of the three greatest British extreme metal bands of all time. The other two being Carcass and Napalm Death. Uh, their first three albums were written kind of about Warhammer, and they ha they have like licensed artwork from Games Workshop. Games Workshop like 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 oh cool, you're writing songs about our stuff. Let's work with you. They probably wouldn't do that nowadays. They'd sue them. No, no, they wouldn't. And they have you know, their first three albums have names like Realms of Chaos and things like that. They're in battle. There is no law. They they fucking rule. Uh, they're so good, and they write about 40k stuff. So, no total no-brainer from me. Alex, let's start with you. Um, I'm not really a metalhead, and I've, I've been trying to listen Ooh. to the, the the lovely podcast of um, of Gareth Death Sentence to trying to to trying to wean myself onto it. Um, <laughs> recently, I've I've been a bit really listening to a lot of Working for a Nuclear Free City. I really like the, that sort of new new gazy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, Danny. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of death metal. I mean, I'm more of like a power metal kind of guy. Uh, it's all metal, dude. What, oh. All metal, yeah. It's all good. I mean, it's all that tradition. One of my favorite bands, honestly, is um, Tear, especially their album um, the, the Lay of Thrym, which is actually very interesting because it was written during the... The context of it is they're basically just like talking about, you know, you have a lot of Nordic bands that do this, where you talk about Norse mythology and whatnot. But the way that Tear does it in the sense of um, one of their songs is about like uh, self-immolation as a form of protest. And it was written at a time uh, in during the Arab Spring where they were talking about um, the ideas of, you know, use uh, the idea of revolution as, you know, making the new, making a, a better world where it's like in the Norse mythology, you have um, kind of how the world began where it's just kind of like reforming and how everything can be very cyclical. 
and that sort of thing. And like they make a very profound political statement through just very good use of uh, the lyrics are incredible. And, you know, they could be uh, I will say they can be a bit problematic uh, just because of um, some of their ideology, like their their ideology is is kind of bizarre, like pan Nordicism, where it's like um, not not like the not like actually like interesting thing is um, like a reclamation of like uh, a cult and stuff from Nazi propaganda, where it's like they're trying to go against that idea that like the occult and like just Nordic peoples should always be like very reactionary and very fascist because of that. Like we normally when the normal culture types talk about nordic culture it's always going to be like that fascism and it's just like oh think about uh, the blonde haired blue eyes girl but that sort of thing so one of my definitely one of my favorite bands flames of the free is a fucking amazing song okay uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna recommend the uh recommend the small little no metal band known as uh bruce springsteen and the e street band uh No, um, I'm going to recommend uh, Gojira, uh, the French band, uh, the name of one of my favorite movies of all time, because they're awesome. Uh, they sing about the environment. Uh, I hope they don't have reactionary politics. I haven't uh, looked that up. I, I hope they don't. As yeah, far they- as I know, you you always roll the dice when any metal band's politics, but as far as I know, Gojira are cool. Yeah, I, I love Gojira and just love their music and stuff. Uh, as always, you can find uh, more of our stuff at sigmarxism.com. Uh, also, please check out Death Sentence. Uh, where can they find you, Gareth? Uh, at Def Sentence PC on Twitter, uh, Patreon forward slash Def Sentence, all one word. Uh, and, you know, iTunes, even though I think that's been cancelled or whatever. Uh, Spotify, SoundCloud is preferred because I like SoundCloud the best. So, or wherever you find your podcasts. All righty. Uh, yeah, and that's basically the same for us. You can find us on Twitter as well. Follow, give both Death Sentence and Sig Marxism a follow at Sig Marxism Pod. Uh, next episode, we are going to be taking some questions. So send us an email at podcast at sigmarxism.com. Also, feel free to join the subreddit. And if you message one of the moderators, you can join up the Discord and ship post against the libs and the conservatives with us. As always, thank you so much, Gareth in particular. Thank you so much for giving us your time uh, and hey, being no so for willing to work with um, uh, adjusting your schedule for us. That's all cool. As always, Nationalize Games Workshop. Nationalize Games Workshop. Email Space Marines need to nationalize Games Workshop. Nationalize Games Workshop, truly. Do that. We give all our guests the clap. (laughs) Uh, This has become a very horny podcast already.